Uh, good morning. As I begin, I want to share with you a story. We'll call uh, uh, we'll call the the main character of the story Pastor Phil. And let's say Pastor Phil woke up one beautiful spring uh, morning, uh, sunny sky, seventy five degrees. So not what we woke up to this morning. And uh, he thought, man, it is a great day to play some golf. And so he calls his associate pastor and says, hey, I'm sick. I can't come in today. Uh, can you preach for me and run the service? And so the associate pastor agrees. And so he's excited. He's playing some hooky. He's getting out of town. And so he goes to the golf course about 45 minutes outside of town so that he can make sure he's playing somewhere where nobody would recognize him. So he gets to the golf course. He's super excited because he also finds that nobody's there. Everybody's at church. And so he can uh, play as quickly or as slowly as he wants to. He has the entire course to himself. And so as he walks up, he's getting ready to tee off on his first shot, and St. Peter up in heaven looks at the Lord and says, are you really going to let him get away with this, right? What are you doing? And as he's asking that question, Pastor Phil smacks the most beautiful drive he's ever done in his entire life, 350 yards, uh, bounces a couple of feet in front of the pin, and rolls in for his first ever hole-in-one of his entire life. And so he's screaming, he's running around, he's so excited. Peter again looks at God and says, why are you letting him get away with this? At which point, God looks at Peter and says, who do you think he's going to tell? <laughs> like, oh, it's funny. Oh, there we go. Okay, like, it's Sunday. Okay. Now, okay, well, first service thought it was funny, so okay. Anyway, I thought it was funny. And I share that story because this morning, as we continue our series through the book of Esther, we're looking at this question. How does God relate to people who disobey him? How does God relate to you and I when we go our own way, when we decide to do our own thing, when we do things that do not bring him honor or do not love and serve other people well? How does God relate to us? How does God relate to those who disobey him? That is what we'll be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 7. Uh, if you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you, page 437, if you would like to read along with us. Uh, we are in a series through the book of Esther. I cannot give you a recap of everything, but I'll try the next 60 seconds or so to let you know the pertinent information of what's going on so you can catch up as we read this morning. Uh, uh, the book of Esther takes place in 480 BC uh, in the uh, country or in the kingdom of Persia, which was the largest uh, kingdom of the world at that time. Uh, King Xerxes, or his Hebrew name Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. And what we've seen so far is that Queen Esther, who this book is named after, is one of the main characters through a series of unfortunate events. Uh, she becomes queen of the entire kingdom. And Mordecai, who is her cousin, also her legal guardian, as she was orphaned as a small child, uh, is a Jew as well. They're both Jewish. And he is not a very faithful Jew. And we know that because he's kind of climbed the political ranks in the Persian kingdom, which means he's probably done a lot of things that would have gone against Jewish law and custom at that time. However, at one point, point, he decides not to bow to this man named Haman. Haman uh, shows up. We're not told what he's done, but he does something where the king promotes him to be second in command over the entire kingdom. Haman is also an Agagite, which was a, a mortal enemy of the Jewish people. Uh, the, the Agagites uh, were attacking the Jews since they got out of the promised land to begin with, uh, out of Egypt. And so they, they are not friends. They are not family. They both are, are family. They're not friends. I don't know what I was trying to say there. Uh, but they both find themselves in Persia. And so Haman, or so for Mordecai, finally, for the first time in his life, and we're not told why, he doesn't bow to Haman, even though Haman had commanded everybody to bow to him. And it seems to be for religious reasons, right? He says, I'm not going to bow to an Agagai. So Haman finds out about it, finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. And so instead of just getting rid of uh, Mordecai, he tricks the king into signing this to de 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 uh, edict or decree that will allow them to wipe out the entire Jewish people in all of Persia. 
And so what we saw last week or the week before is that Mordecai goes to the queen, who is his cousin, Esther, and says, go to the king and beg him to reverse this edict. The only problem was the queen could not go to the king unless she was summoned, just like everyone else in the kingdom. If you were to approach the king kind of on your own volition, you could be killed. And so they come up with a plan. Esther says, well, why don't you tell, tell the Jewish people to fast for three days, and then I will go to the king, and whatever happens, happens. So they fast. She goes to the king, and as we saw last week, the king spares her life and says, what is it that you want? He's actually curious what she is going to ask of him. And so she says, I want to have a banquet with you and Haman, and at that banquet, I will tell you what it is I request. So last week, we saw they had the banquet. For some reason, she says, I want to have a second banquet, and at that second banquet, then I will tell you what I am asking. And so after that banquet ends, uh, Haman goes home. He walks past Mordecai, who does not bow to him again. And so he's furious. He goes home, tells his wife and his friends about it. They say, why don't you just go ahead and kill Haman now? Don't wait, or Mordecai now, don't wait until the edict comes to pass. And so the next day, he wakes up, going to go ask the king to kill Mordecai. However, the king had, uh, couldn't sleep that night. And so he had the records of the kingdom read to him. And he found that five years previous, so we saw in Esther chapter one or chapter two, that uh, Mordecai had essentially thwarted an assassination attempt on the king's life, but he had never been rewarded for it. And so he decides that he is going to honor Mordecai. So Esther, or Haman comes in early that morning uh, expecting to ask the king to kill Mordecai, when instead he makes Haman honor Mordecai for this good deed. And so Haman, Haman goes home, he's upset, he tells his wife and his friends, and they're like, this is not going well for you because he's Jewish and you're an Aga guy. This is not going to end well for you. So he's at home and the eunuchs come and pick him up because it's time for the second banquet with the king and with uh, Esther. And it's not going to go as well as he had originally hoped. All that to say, here we go, Esther chapter 7. By the way, this is probably my favorite chapter because it is awesome. Verse 1. <laughs> the king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. And so this is the second feast, again, that, that Esther had requested the king and Haman join her with, where she is going to finally tell the king what it is that she wants to meet with him about. Now, we also at this point are imagining that this is going to be Haman's downfall, but we don't yet know how it is going to happen. Now, this is the third time that the king is asking the queen what she wants, which likely shows that he is genuinely curious and he really wants to do for her whatever it is that she is actually asking. Now, what's interesting is that he's likely assuming that she is going to ask for some material possession. Right? Probably something about the kingdom, something that she wants or wants him to do because that's what most people seem to be after. And yet what we see is that it's not material possession. It's not even for her own benefit that she wants to meet with a king. It's because she's actually after what is the most important thing, and that is the, the lives of people. Right? She's after, actually after the, the protection of human lives. And this is an interesting thought experiment as we read through chapter 7. If you could sit before God, think of it this way, if you could go before God today and ask him for anything, what would it be? Like if you could ask him for anything, what would you ask him for? Now, it's probably not completely fair for me to ask that question because we just read how, how Esther is getting ready to be uh, completely self, selfless. So you might be in the mood to say, well, of course I'd ask for nice things. So maybe the best way to answer this is, what did you pray to God about this week? Or maybe you didn't pray, you're not quite sure about this God thing. Like, what are the, what are the desires that you most have in your life that if it would just go the way that you want them to go, then you would be happy, right? That actually shows us uh, how much we are actually after ourselves or other people. Maybe the question is this, think of it this way, that if God answered all of your prayers, would the world look any different or just your life? 
But as we read this, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, if you could actually go before God uh, and he would actually answer all of your prayers today that you have prayed this past week, would the world look any different or would it just be your life? It reminds me of Finley. So she's uh, Christine and I's oldest daughter, our oldest child. She's about to turn uh, five in April. And uh, Finley uh, remembers everything, like everything. And I don't know if all kids are like this at her age, because I never had a kid her age before, right? So maybe they are, I don't know. Uh, but just to give you an example, a few weeks ago, uh, we were having dinner together, and she says, Daddy, I found this stuffed animal that I want you to, from Target that I want you to buy for me for Valentine's Day. To which I respond, who said I was getting you something for Valentine's Day? And she says, you always buy me a stuffed animal for every Valentine's Day. And then she listed in detail everyone I've ever bought her. I'm like, you were one years old. How do you know? It's like an owl, a green fr- a frog with like this white heart on it. I don't even know all of them, but she like listened to it. And they're not even like these big things. They're like these small, like $5, like throwaway, almost like, like they're nothing. And she remembers all of them, all of them. And I'm like, man, some of y'all are worried about like Alexa or your smartphone. And she knows everything about me, right? You just go talk to her. She will air my dirty laundry, right? So, and I shared that. She seems to remember everything because when we pray, she always prays for two things or prays in two ways. One, she says, thank you, God, for various things that she's thankful for. But then she prays for people. Many of you in this room have no idea she's prayed for you because she's heard you in the lobby or somebody talking about it. And so she's praying for people's backs and their knees and they're pregnant and they're sick. Some of these things have been like six months ago and she just wants to pray about it, right? And so it's amazing when I, when I ask this question, I think, man, if God answered all of Finley's prayers this week, this, our world would be a tremendously better place. It would be a better place. And I say that because here's, here's the thing. We should ask God to move on our behalf. Like we should ask him for things that might be helpful or beneficial to us because he is God and he's able and he is powerful. So we should go to him with our personal requests. But we also should, like Esther, if we actually care for those around us, be, uh, be sure to ask for and pray for other people so that when God actually does answer our prayers, it's not just our life that is benefited, but it is also benefit to those around us as we see Esther doing. And so here's what happens next, verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased to spare my life, this is my request. And spare my people, this is my desire. Now, this is interesting here uh, because this would have startled the king that the Esther was in danger. Again, the king does not know that Esther is Jewish at this point, and he's probably thinking, what do you mean spare your life? Like, who in the world is trying to threaten the the queen? Verse 4, she continues, "For, For my people and I have been sold to destruction death, and extermination. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the key. And so here we see that Esther is identifying herself with the people who had been sold. Uh, Being sold was kind of a turn of phrase in that time that meant betrayal. If you remember that, again, she's also Jewish, that Haman kind of tricked and manipulated the king to sign this decree against the Jewish people. And one of the things he told the king is that if we wipe them out, we'll get to keep all of their money and all of their resources, right? And so Esther is identifying herself with with these people. Uh, for Haman's request to kill the Jews. And this would have been quite surprising, again, because Haman didn't know that she was Jewish, and neither did the king. And so she's going before the king saying, there is this edict that has come to pass that is actually impacting me and my people. And so again, she's coming before the king, asking him to move. Now, the reality of the situation is I think it's, it's hard for us to actually understand how absolutely terrifying for the queen this would have been. 
Because if you remember, and if you've been here throughout the series, if you remember how the first queen in chapter 1, Queen Vashti, was deposed for not doing something that queens were not typically supposed to do. And the king got rid of her. And so she might be thinking, again, I'm the one asking a big favor of the king. Uh, what if he does not like what I have to say? What if I anger him? Because what, what makes this situation even more tricky is that although it was Haman's idea to, to create this edict to kill all the Jewish people, the king still signed off on it. Right? The king was still responsible for it. And so the question and the tension for Esther is, how can I bring this before the king without angering him and embarrassing him? Because although this was Haman's idea, he gave it the go-ahead. Like, how do I do that? Now, again, we're never, none of us, I don't think, will ever be in that situation, right? None of us are Esther, right? Where we're going to ask somebody not to do something that they did because it was a dumb idea, right? And they might die because of it. But maybe you've been in a situation where you had to confront a boss, right, about maybe a dumb decision that they had made and, or maybe something they were doing that was not right, right? And you're afraid because you could get fired, you could, lose your, you could not get promoted, you could not uh, maybe get a pay raise in the future, right? You know it's the right thing to do, but are you willing to do it? It kind of reminds me uh, when I was, I worked at Verizon some years ago and uh, it was a couple of months left before I was going to quit and we were going to start the church plant thing and all that sort of thing uh, to make it possible for where we are today. And so I was only going to be there for a few more months and at that point I'm like, I don't care. Like I showed up and I did my job well, but I couldn't wait to, to get out of there. And then we find out that one of the, the C-suite people from Verizon is coming to visit. Now, not the CEO, but one of the top five people in the company was coming to the Raleigh area and was going to spend the day going to each store. So everybody starts freaking out about this. We have to like stay late to like scrub the floorboards and all this sort of thing. And I'm like, this guy knows we don't normally do this, right? Like, who, like why are we doing this? And I, some people are, are like going to try to impress him. I'm like, he's not going to promote you. He doesn't care what you lowly retail, but we think he doesn't care about us. Whereas everybody's freaking out. And I'm like, oh, great. I really hope I'm not here the day he comes, right? And so we're, we're staying late, coming early, making the space look spotless. And then the day arrives and I actually had to, it was scheduled to work the day he was there. And I'm like, okay, great. This will be fine. Everyone's like freaking out. And so he comes, right? And we're told he's going to be there soon. And so he finally comes to our store and he's walking around with the manager. The manager is spending some time with him, explaining how everything's going. And I'm trying to avoid him, right? And so he kind of, they kind of come anywhere in my vicinity. I'm like, well, I'm going to go help this person. And I'm going to, like, I'm like, I don't care. Just, just let this thing in. I don't care. Well, eventually they called me over to the corner of our store where we had this giant touch screen. We were one of the first stores in our area to have it where we taught classes on like how to use your iPhone or iPad or Android, your devices. And I was the one that pretty much taught all the classes. And so they asked me to come over to explain it to him, how we did it, you know, what people thought of it, the feedback and all that sort of thing. And so I'm kind of going through the ordeal. Here's how it works. You know, people like it, blah, blah, blah. And so he's sitting there and this guy asked me this question. He says, uh, he's trying to, I think he's just thinking off the top of his head of how could we promote this better? Like, how could we tell more people about it since we seem to be getting positive reviews from it? And so he asked me, he says, do you think it's a good idea if we printed out flyers and had somebody stand in front of the other stores, like Sprint, T-Mobile, whatever, saying, like, hey, we'll teach you how to use your device. And I thought for a second, and I said, no, I don't, no, I don't think so, because I think that would like make those people mad, like the employees of those stores. Like, why is this Verizon guy like trying to get our customers? Like, I think they'd not like that. And he responded by saying, well, I don't care about making people mad. And I said, okay, fair enough. But then I said, but I still don't think it's a good idea, because even if I was a customer, and I'm walking out of, of a Sprint store, and you're like trying to get me to come to Verizon, even if it's good intentions, I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, you're trying to sell me something. Like, it would make me feel uncomfortable. And so I said, no, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. I, I, I wouldn't do it, but well, you know, whatever. And I remember how the conversation ended, and I go back to do my thing, and he spent some time with the manager, and he leaves. Well, as soon as he leaves, our manager comes back onto the floor, and he says, Dylan, get in my office now. And I'm like, Okay, what do I do? Again there, he says, sit down and close the door. He says, why in the world did you tell him that he had a bad idea? And I'm thinking, 
because he had a bad idea. And he asked me what I thought of it. Why would you not tell someone they have a dumb idea if they ask you if it was a dumb idea? Of course I told him it was a bad idea. Like, it was a bad idea. And I also thought, I didn't say this, I'm like, he doesn't care anyway. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about you. And you know what? He's probably sick of people like you trying to suck up to him just saying yes every time he asks a question, right? So I didn't do that, but that's what I thought, right? Now, here's the situation. Obviously, my situation was different than Esther because I, couldn't, I wasn't going to be killed, and if I got fired, I didn't care anyway. Right? Didn't care anyway. But that's what we find herself here, right? She has to confront the king over a poor decision that she made. And here's what we see, what we can draw from Esther. Here's the point that love does. The point is that love does. And here's what I mean. There's a, a few years ago, a guy by the name of Bob Goff wrote a book called Love Does, talking about this topic. And he said, the point is this, that love is an action, right? Love is a verb. Love is something that you do. That if you actually care for people, you know, desire good for people, you don't just think about it, you don't just have good intentions, but it moves you to action. And what we see is that the queen, Esther here, loves her people so much that she is willing to risk her own life. And this isn't just, this isn't, this isn't just like, uh, say that for dramatic effect, she literally could be killed for this. But because she loves her people, she's putting what is, good of, what is the good of other people in front of what might be good, safe, and easy for her. What we see from Esther is that love does. It's not just a, a, something you think about. It's not just something that you want to do someday. That if you really care and love other people, your coworkers, your classmates, your family, your neighbors, it will motivate you and I to action. Love does. And so that's what we see Esther doing. Here's what happens next. Verse 5. So King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Right? And so the king, again, he's likely so used to death and destruction that he literally cannot remember what decree she is talking about. Like, what is happening? Who's dying? Like, what's happening? I don't even remember. Right? She literally, he likely cannot even remember signing it. And also what's, what's interesting here is that Esther has, again, up to this point, never released her Jewish identity. The king didn't know, and Haman didn't know. They did not know that she was actually a, a Jew. And so they want to know what's going on here. Of course, at this point, Haman knows what she's referring to, and he's starting to get nervous. Verse 6, Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is the evil Haman. Haman stood in anger before the king and queen. And so Esther announces, again, what I'm talking about is the edict that Haman uh, kind of tricked you into signing, uh, encouraged you into signing. He is the guilty party. Now, again, immediately, as we're seeing here, Haman would be terrified because although he didn't know it, he just indicted the queen. He signed a decree that would kill the queen and her people. And so he is freaking out that he is, has manipulated the queen or the king and his plan is going to be revealed. So verse 7, it gets better. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. So if you've been here through this series and if you're reading this book, here's what you're thinking at this point. Get him, Esther. Get him. Right? You go, girl. Let's do this thing. Right? You get Haman. Right? So, so the king leaves and he's freaking out. Now, the king is furious about what's happening, and he's also furious that Haman uh, made him sign this decree. Again, he didn't know the situation behind it. He didn't know uh, Mordecai and Haman's beef. He did not know the queen was Jewish, and so he is furious. And so he leaves the room as he's going to decide what he wants to do. And after he leaves the room, Haman stays in the room to beg Esther for mercy and forgiveness and essentially for his life. And as we're going to see, he actually makes things Worse, verse 8. Now, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, 
Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now this is interesting because you might be wondering, why in the world would uh, the king think that Haman is violating the queen? Like he's already in trouble, clearly he wouldn't be that stupid. Here's what's happening here for us to kind of understand the cultural context of what's going on. Uh, at this time, the harem protocol, so the queen and all of the king's concubines, uh, the protocol was that nobody could be left with it alone with any of the, queen's, uh, the king's women. You can never be alone in the room with any of the women in the harem, and especially the king. And so what should have happened here when uh, the king left the room or the banquet hall is that Haman also should have left. The question, though, is where was he supposed to go? Because if he followed the king, first of all, you were not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to follow the king anywhere unless you are invited. And plus, the king is mad, so he can't like, try to convince the king otherwise. The king is furious with him, and he's not allowed to go follow the king unless he was summoned, right? So he can't do that. But you would think, well, why doesn't he just leave the room? Now, because of what's going on, he might not be completely thinking clearly. But if he were to leave the room when the king left, it probably would have shown that he was guilty. Like people probably would have thought that he was trying to get away and he would have been immediately arrested. So there's really nothing that he can do. And to make matters worse, what, what, he's, what he's doing here when the king returns is that in typical Near Eastern fashion, what would this would have looked like if you were begging for somebody's forgiveness is that he likely would have grabbed her ankles, would have kissed her feet, and would have been begging her for forgiveness. And so such an action would have explained why the king interprets Haman's actions as violating the queen. Because number one, he's not supposed to be alone with the queen. And number two, it was also custom that you were not even allowed within seven steps of one of the king's women, especially the queen. So even if there were other people in the room, he certainly wasn't allowed close to her, and he certainly should not have been touching, here, touching her. And so the irony here, of course, of all of this is that Haman, and all this started because a Jew would not bow to him, now, has, now as an Agagite, is bowing to a Jew. And he's grabbing Esther's feet, and he's begging for the forgiveness, and this is what makes the king so upset. Now, this turn of events likely would bring to mind uh, passages in, in Proverbs, such as Proverbs chapter 11, verse 6, which says this. It says, The righteousness of the upright rescues them, but the treacherous are trapped by their own desires. Right? What do we see here? That Haman was so prideful and making sure everybody bowed to him and everybody did whatever he wanted to do, that he did whatever he could to wipe out anybody who would not do what he wanted. Or it would bring to mind Proverbs like Proverbs chapter 29, verse 16, which says, when the wicked increase, rebellion increases, but the righteous will see their downfall. And this is literally what is happening here, right? Esther, the righteous one, the good one, the noble one, is looking down at Haman, right? She is overseeing his downfall. And what we see here, particularly with how this thing turns out for Haman, is this, that sin deceives you into thinking that you won't be found out. Sin deceives you and I into thinking that we can do whatever we want to do and we will get away with it. Last week we talked about how pride is the number one indicator of ongoing sin in our life, right? Because we think we're strong enough on our own or we're too ashamed to tell anybody, right? And part of the reason we continue in sin, maybe you have a, a sin struggle that's been happening for a while or a weakness in your life that you cannot seem to get over, part of it is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're good, that we can handle it, and that we don't need anybody's help. Here's the reality of the situation, that if that's you, that if there is an ongoing sin struggle in your life, the best thing you can do is be honest about it now, because the reality of the situation is none of us will get away with anything. Everything we do will be found out. 
Now, it might be not for a while, or it may not even be in this life. But God, who is over everything, who sees everything, and as we're going to see in just a second, how does he treat those who dishonor him and turn away from him? He sees everything. The best thing we can do is simply be honest. Again, Haman wasn't. Again, the king likely did not know the tension between Haman and Mordecai. And so he devised this massive plan, thinking he was going to get away with it. And it was his sin that deceives him into thinking that. And so it is this true for you and for me. Sin deceives all of us into thinking we will not be found out, which is not true. And so here's what happens next in verse 9. After they uh, covered and took away, or took, covered Haman's face, verse 9, Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows at 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. Now, here's what we see here, that Haman, if, you were here, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, ordered, uh, was ordered to be executed on the same gallows that he originally constructed for Mordecai, of whom he was going to ask the king if he could hang Mordecai on those gallows. Right? And so the same thing, in the same way that Mordecai wanted to punish Haman, again, the irony here, the, the role reversal here is that that is what is going to happen to him. That is what is going to happen to him. Verse 10, they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's anger subsided. Now remember, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, and not to be too graphic, but hanging here is not hanging from a noose, as we might traditionally think of. Uh, in this culture, in this time, they would actually impale you. So they built this massive structure, and they would actually hang uh, Mordecai's body on it through impaling to humiliate him and his family. And what we see here is that the, ultimately what we see is that the evil that Haman had planned for Mordecai and the Jews had now fallen on him. He thought he could get away with it. He thought he was going to do this awesome thing in his own eyes, and yet he couldn't escape the judgment that was coming to him. In other words, in some ways, it's a cautionary tale of what, of, of what life can be like for us today. Uh, Karen Jobes, in her, in her commentary on the book of Esther, puts it this way. She says, fallen human nature set itself against God in the Garden of Eden and was condemned to death by God. That fallen nature is embodied in the book of Esther as the Agagite nature of Haman. But it is the universal condition of all who have not been uh, reconciled to God in Christ. Haman, the powerful, wealthy Agagite, pridefully sets out to live in a way that seems right to him. This is often what happens when we sin, right? We do things that seem right to us. But in the end, finds out only too late that he uh, he actually set himself against God and his people. Sadly, so it will be with those who are not in Christ on their own day of judgment. In other words, here's what we see here, and here's the reality of the situation, that all of us will face the judgment of God. All of us will face the judgment of God. And, and hear me, this is not me trying to be fire and brimstone or trying to scare anybody to do anything. The reality of the situation is all of us will be subject to the judgment of God. And as Brian, who was up here a couple weeks ago, said so well, and I, and I have not been able to stop thinking about it since, here's the reality of the situation. It's easy for us to look at Haman and be like, well, I would never do that. Like, yes, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I would never kill anybody. Like, I would never do anything that terrible. And while that may be true, here's the reality of the situation. All of us are actually capable of quite evil things. The reality of the situation, however, is that unlike Haman, you and I simply don't have the power to exercise that. But, but we do exercise it in the small amount of power that we have. For example, when we lie about other people, when we gossip, right, when we do things in our own ability to kind of maybe not believe the best about others and assume their motivations, like we can all do things, like clearly not to the scale of Haman, but we can all do things within our own power that make us feel better and that denigrate and downgrade other people. Right? All of us, because of that, will face the judgment of God. 
right? And this is heavy, right? This is heavy. This is why the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us is good news because there is bad news, right? Because if there is not bad news, there is not good news. There is simply news, right? The bad news is that all of us, like Haman, have gone our own way, have done things that were right in our own lives, uh, that have not always honored God, that sometimes have disobeyed God, that we are not, have not lived up to God's perfect standard. And what does God do? Instead of doing, uh, doing what we deserve to do, uh, instead of being bitter at us and angry at us, which he has every right to do, what does he do? He makes a way, he sends Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Through Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, everyone who trusts and follows in him, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done, gets to receive the grace and mercy and, and love of the Father. That we don't have to go before God with fear and trembling and anxiety, that we can go before him with gladness and thanksgiving because of what he has done for us. The reality of the situation is because, is that, is, is because all of us will face the judgment of God, we will all bow to him because he is king and we are not. It's like it says in Philippians chapter 2, uh, it says this in verse 9, it says, for this reason, so he's talking about Christ here and all, all that Christ has done for us, for this reason, God exalted him, that is Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice here, it does not say if, our, if every knee will bow, but it says we will bow. It's not if rather than that. It is how. Will it be out of gladness, submission, and thankfulness because of the relationship and the life that Christ is giving us? Or will it be to our shame because we thought we were God, that we could do it on our own, that we did not need him, that we could somehow convince him that we're good, we don't need you, we will all bow to Jesus. Not if, but how. And the good news of the gospel is that he has made a way for us to receive his grace, forgiveness, and mercy, a way to enter into his kingdom, not because of us, but because of him. And so to answer the question, right, how does God deal and relate to people who disobey him, here's what we see, and here's the point this morning, that God treats us better than we deserve. The reality of the situation is that God treats us better than we deserve. Now, this might go against what you typically hear, what you typically assume that God is bitter, and that he's angry, and he's judgmental, and he can't wait to spite us and get us. That is not what we see, that he is a gracious and a loving God. He does for us, not, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but simply out of, our, out of his love for us. The reality of the situation is this, that Jesus treats us like Mordecai when we can all be like Haman. And what is Mordecai's story? Again, we hinted at it today. He was not a faithful Jew. He did not honor God. It does not appear throughout his life. He makes one decision, one decision. I'm not going to bow to this Agagite. I'm going to be faithful maybe for the first time ever. Makes one decision, and through a series of events, he gets to be honored in front of all the kingdom. And so it is like for us, right? It's not about doing all the right things. It is not about never screwing up. It is about simply being honest, making a one decision to say, Christ, I need you. I cannot figure this out on my own. And then God treats us the same way that this evil king treated Mordecai that he is loving, that he is gracious, that he is forgiving, as we say often here around New City Church, that because of Christ and what he has done for us, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. And so I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what yesterday looked like for you. I don't know what this week looked like for you. I don't know what this past year looked like for you. You may feel like you've blown it. You may feel like there's nothing that you could do to earn God's love and God's forgiveness. And here's the reality of the situation. You're right. There is nothing you can do. And that is why he sent Jesus. 
Jesus is our King, our, self, our Savior. He took our place so that anybody, again, who loves and trusts and follows in Jesus gets the grace and mercy of God. The reality of the situation is this. God treats all of us better than we deserve. And it's not because we try really hard. It's not because we've earned it. Because Christ came to be our substitute to make a way for anybody and everybody who would simply be honest about their condition before God to receive the grace, mercy, and love that he offers. God treats us better than we deserve. And as we saw in this chapter, Esther seems to be safe, but we're not quite sure what is going to happen to her people. And that is what we're going to see next week. Let's pray.